Welcome to It's a Question of Balance with Ruth Copland. Featuring stimulating in-depth interviews with special guests from all areas of the arts. And now, here's your host for It's a Question of Balance, Ruth Copland. Welcome to the show where we balance the intellectual with the creative, exploring whether we have more in common than divides us through thought-provoking conversations. For the topic hour, I go out and about and talk to people on the street about a wide variety of different subjects that affect us all, both locally and globally. And for this, the Arts Hour, I interview local, national and international guests from all areas of the arts. The show combines a debate topic with an arts interview because I feel that discussion and creativity are two of the most vital ways we engage with the world. This week, as my special guest from the arts, I'm pleased to be interviewing Marlon James, professor and award-winning author of the New York Times bestseller A Brief History of Seven Killings, The Book of Night Women and John Crow's Devil. A Brief History of Seven Killings explores several decades of Jamaican history around the time of an assassination attempt on Bob Marley. It won the Man Booker Prize, the American Book Award and the Annisfield Wolf Award for Fiction and was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. The Book of Night Women is about a slave woman's revolt on a Jamaican plantation in the 19th century. It won the Minnesota Book Award and was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award, as well as the NAACP Image Award. Originally from Jamaica, Marlon currently divides his time between New York and Minnesota, where he is a professor at McAllister College in St. Paul, teaching English and creative writing. Marlon's latest book is the first in the Dark Star trilogy and is called Black Leopard, Red Wolf. For listeners in California, Marlon will be at Bookshop Santa Cruz on Monday, February 18th at 7pm. Welcome to the show, Marlon. It's lovely to have you. Thanks for having me. I'm wondering if you can remember the first time that art of any kind had a deep effect on you beyond just entertainment, whether it was a book or a picture or music or some other kind of art where you really realize that it can affect us on a on a deeper level, um, you know, rather than just entertain us? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, the, the deeper level in which art or the arts affected me is it made me realize there's something else I wanted to do. And, uh, and that would have been like the book that first made me wanted to tell stories, which would have been mm. Um, Laura Ingalls Wilder's Little House in the Big Woods. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, books from that far back. Um, comics, um, absolutely, um, and uh, film, and, and probably more like the television. Mm. And that's what I think of um, affecting me deeply in the sense that there is a sort of a. It set off. A, 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 I don't know. A chain reaction is, is, is not a great way of saying it, but mm. it really is. It really was a sort of, it fired off a certain kind of synapses. And it also made me, it made me go beyond just liking um, these things, these books, these TV shows, these films, these mm. songs. And it made me think, I want to do that. I want to, I want to, I want to express myself in a way that has that kind of impact that I am feeling from you know from these from these books mm, yeah 
Yeah, that's a, a great book to choose, Little House in the Big Woods, because I, I think it, it's a book that really takes you into a world, isn't it? I mean, it, it, you, mm-hmm. that, one that's probably, you know, very unfamiliar to most people, I would say, these days. Uh, yeah. was un- I mean, it was unfamiliar to me back then. You know, it's, I grew up in... I grew up in a pretty, you know, noisy, vibrant, boisterous, modern Caribbean city. Mm. Um, you know, the prairie fields of, of North America um, was the furthest thing from my reality. I mean, I, I had no parallel with it whatsoever. But at the same time, I'm feeling like I'm in the prairie. I'm, I'm experiencing snow, which I wouldn't go on to experience for another 30 years. Right, um, yeah. You know, it, but it, you know, but it was more than being lost in the world. It's, it's the book is now closed. What do I do? I feel like I want to write. Mm, yeah. Uh, as opposed to this was a great story. Let's read another one. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the art that makes you want to make art is mm. usually the first thing that strikes strikes you if if you're a creative person. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I hadn't thought about yeah. that before, but I think that's true. Yeah, definitely. Did you grow up in a creative environment, would you say, or, or did you find art for yourself? Um, I wouldn't necessarily call it a creative environment. It was an environment that allowed a lot of creativity to happen. Mm. One, because there were all these books lying around, but also because I had a lot of free time and was incredibly bored most of the time. <laughs> you know, as a kid growing up in the suburbs, yeah, 90% of that is, is, is boredom. Yeah, it's true. Um, and I think that, you know, it, it was a, a, a response to boredom. Mm. Um, sometimes books and, 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 and these things weren't available. Film certainly wasn't available. Mm. So I had to, some, you know, so a lot of that initial creativity was out of necessity. I just, the only way I was going to end up with stories was to write them. Right, uh, yeah. And, and and that's kind of, you know, that's kind of what happened. Um it's it's it, you know it was a house where a lot of culture, particularly pop culture, was happening. Mm. I mean, I grew up in the early seventies, so reggae was still a burgeoning movement, mm. and it was a subversive movement. So it was it would never been allowed in my house. Oh really? Wow. So, yeah. Right. So so I'm really hearing it in the street. I'm hearing it in neighbors' houses. The end result being that I you know from then on I you know I cannot tend to trust the street when it comes to art. Mm. You know, I, 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 I trust what's bubbling up on the ground mm. as opposed to necessarily what somebody tells me is the cool thing or the hot thing. I was like, that's not really how I ended up coming across anything that started to shape my life. Most of it I had to seek out. Right. Yeah. And you, you've mentioned, you know, exposure to, somewhat to, to film and TV as well as books. Mm-hmm. What do you think drew you particularly to writing as your art form rather than a different way of expressing your creativity? Well, I mean, well, for one, I had different ways. I mean, I've been an art, you know, an illustrator and um, mm. graphic oh. artist. That was that was back in another life. <laughs> I can't remember who I was back then. <laughs> um, what what drew me to to writing is something I think Terry Tempest Williams says. She says to write so that she could have more than one life, mm. and I think that's what drew me to writing over everything else. Mm. Every time I wrote something, I was having as living more than one life, mm. especially, you know, growing up as a depressed kid. I mean, if, if I were, if I grew up in a, in a, in America or the UK, I'd have been a goth. I think <laughs> I just, you know, 
um, depression and disaffected. Um, so it would be to me, I, you know, that's how it started is creating all these sort of worlds that, um, you know, that I would want to live in or, or sometimes just want to escape from. Yes. Yeah. Um, but that, yeah, I'm, that's how, for me at least, certainly as, as a, as a kid who is, you know, hopefully smart, but also really pretentious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, of course I'm going to think, you know, I'm writing, I'm writing myself into this sort of world and reality and responding to the world around me. Mm. Yeah. And while he was saying that, I, I was thinking about, you know, different art forms. I think writing, um, it's a really extended uh, interrelationship with your art, whereas, um, you know, other forms perhaps are more um, encapsulated, if you like, like writing a song or something like that while you're writing it, you know, you're really into it. But it's it's fairly encapsulated, whereas writing is a very much longer process that you, you are having that relationship with your art, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think writing, at least really good writing, has to always be engaged with the world. Right. Um, I think people have this sort of myth that, um, write, you know, writers um, lock themselves up in these isolated spaces and create. Mm. Uh, a lot of writers even believe that myth. <laughs> <laughs> I can. I, um, I have always... Even when I'm writing a sci-fi or a fantasy book, I'm always engaged with the world. Um, in my office, I open the windows so I can hear traffic, mm, and yeah. the noise, and I can hear hear the pulse of the people. Yes. Um, and to me, art has always been a way to to participate in society as opposed to stepping away from it. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Your first novel, John Crow's Devil, was published after many initial rejections. And mm-hmm. it seems quite a few books that go on to be very successful have suffered many early rejections. I, I wonder why this is, you know, maybe because they're quite different or the timing's wrong. I, I wondered why you think or yeah. if you have any thoughts on why your book was initially rejected. I mean, I think it's a combination of, of, of all, all the above that um, it's, it's, you know, a lot of these Industries are here to make money. Mm. Um, you know, if 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 they else if they hit that sort of magic magic uh, combination of art and commerce is great. Mm. But if they have to choose between the two, commerce is going to win. Mm. Yeah. And you know, and I think um, a lot of people, very very small people, just didn't see um, an audience or a future mm. for, for that kind of book. I also think um, that. Even though we pay a lot of lip service to innovation and art and artistic development, I think a lot of times people would rather play it safe. Right. Because, uh, and I'm not, not, which is not to say that what I was doing was, 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 you know, new or anything. In fact, I didn't think it was at all. I thought it was in a traditional world that's already there. Mm. Um, but I think we also have a very narrow idea as to what our audience will appreciate. Right. Um, yes. You know, we have a very narrow idea of what we think would sell or what people would like. I mean, I've mm. always trusted the reader. I've always trusted the person who consumes the work. Mm. Um, but it's it's um you know it's just a sort of a, a kind of a short sightedness, a very narrow idea as to what makes a, a I guess a readable book, what makes people want to do that. But I mean, that's that's this you know as you said, the the story of of, of novels and so on being rejected is pretty long. I mean, 
um, catch twenty two was rejected forty eight times. Mm, wow! Yeah, yeah. Of course, you went on to win the Man Booker Prize, which is a, a huge thing—the kind of recognition dreamt of by aspiring authors. I'm wondering how that level of success has affected you both personally and also mm-hmm. as a writer. Um, it hasn't really affected me as a writer, and it, um, really. For one, I you know the book I'm writing, the book I just um, published, I was writing from before I won the Booker. Mm. Um, okay. I you know it's it's at this stage you know in my in my life and my career I've experienced everything. I've experienced major success. I've experienced readings where nobody showed up. Mm. Um, you know I've experienced having my books you know be on the shelf for years. I've experienced my books being taken off the shelf after a month because uh, it's an underground independent book and they thought nobody cares. So, so I mean, the the commercial fortunes of a book doesn't affect me much because I've experienced all the extremes. I right. Think. Yes. Yeah. Um, and and, I've, and 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 even then, I've never. I mean, I've always thought that once you are right, once you start to write, or once you begin that process. It's only about the work. It's not about people's expectations, mm. regardless of whatever people had for the first, the, you know, the previous, you know, the previous book. Yeah, I think I think it's a very, uh, you know, a potentially destructive direction uh, a writer or an, an artist can go if they start thinking about how do I top the next book mm. or how do I, yeah. how do I, you know, how do I um, respond to something that was super successful? Do I just turn into a formula now and just write the mm. same kind of things? Or do I retreat and write the, the sort of really quiet book? Mm. Um, I just, I, I had to at some point remind myself that, you know, I should write the book that I felt um, I wanted to write. That mm. a statement that I felt I wanted to make as opposed to thinking of what's the apt way to respond to this? What's the, what's the, what's the perfect statement after winning a prize and so on? I just, mm-hmm. yeah. And um, otherwise, I would never have written a fantasy novel. Mm. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I'm going to talk to you about that um, after the break. Uh, you're listening to It's a Question of Balance with me, Ruth Copland, and my special guest from the arts this week, award-winning writer Marlon James. If you're listening in California in the Santa Cruz area, Marlon is going to be appearing at Bookshop Santa Cruz on Monday, February 18th at 7 p.m. It's a great opportunity to meet Marlon, ask any burning questions you may have, and also get your book signed. We're going to break now, but I'll be back with more conversation with Marlon after these messages. Ciao, I'm Luca from Tramonti at 528 Seabright Avenue, steps from the ocean. We are the authentic Italian pizza and pasta restaurant, serving also organic salad and house-made dessert in a friendly family-style atmosphere, indoor or on our lovely patio. Tramonti is open every day, Monday through Friday, from 4 p.m. to 10 p.m., happy hour from front to six. Saturdays and Sunday, we open at 11 and we also serve brunch. We bake our bread and prep our fresh pasta and pizza daily. We want to say grazie to the Santa Cruz community for supporting us since 2012. Allora, buon appetito. Visit Tremonti at 528 Seabright Avenue in Santa Cruz. 
That's Tremonti at 528 Seabright Avenue in Santa Cruz. And follow Tremonti Santa Cruz on Instagram. It's wonderful, it's wonderful. Named Best Film Festival by USA Today readers, the Cinequest Film and Creativity Festival returns to Silicon Valley March 5th through March 17th. Here's Cinequest co-founder Kathleen Powell talking on its a question of balance. You know, Silicon Valley is such a unique place. It's where creativity and innovation come together to empower. And that's our vision with Cinequest. This is where it all happens. We want every individual that walks through the door to feel like the value that they got far exceeds what they ever put into it. Join attending Maverick Award winners, beloved British actor Bill Nighy and multi-award winning actor and director Nandita Das for over 132 world and US premieres, virtual reality from 56 countries and a range of fabulous celebrations, live performances and creativity experiences. I'm interviewing Maverick Award winner, educator and journalist Esther Wojcicki after she's presented with her award. So I hope you can join us as well as checking out the festival films. Cinequest is a wonderful opportunity to see what the world's film community is creating. As Neil Gaiman says, it's the perfect festival in a glorious place. For the complete lineup and festival passes and tickets, visit cinequest.org. That's C-I-N-E-Q-U-E-S-T dot O-R-G. Hi, I'm Casey, and I'm the second-generation owner of Bookshop Santa Cruz. We pride ourselves on being Santa Cruz's community bookstore. We feature an extensive selection of new and used books, children's books and toys, gifts, cards, magazines, and games. Our knowledgeable booksellers can help you find just the right book or gift. We hope you can join us for our author events each week, featuring best-selling authors and books of local interest. And if you can't get downtown, our website has over 3.2 million titles, which ship directly to your home. We even have experts on site to help you publish your own book or family history. Come visit us downtown or at our website, bookshopsantacruz.com. Bookshop Santa Cruz has been an independent bookseller for over half a century in the community we love. Visit Bookshop Santa Cruz downtown. We love our customers and the books that make it all possible. Bookshop Santa Cruz, online and in downtown Santa Cruz. You're listening to It's Question of Balance with me, Ruth Copland, and my special guest from the arts this week, Man Booker Prize-winning author, Marlon James. So, Marlon, your latest book is Black Leopard, Red Wolf. Before we talk about it, could you give listeners an idea of the story without giving too much away? Sure. It's uh, uh, Black Leopard, Red Wolf is, is a, a sort of an African medieval uh, fantasy novel where a slave trader has hired a group of mercenaries to find a child who has been missing for three years. Mm. And um, on this mission to find a child, many things happen. Um, you know, many, many, they go through many adventures and, and misadventures and sometimes lose their way. And the, the novel begins the way it ends, which is the child is dead and uh, people have a lot to answer for. Mm. Uh, the way the trilogy is set up 
is that there are three witnesses, um, and each witness testimony is a separate novel. So the first witness, Tracker, his entire, the novel basically is his entire deposition. Mm. Um, so the way the trilogy would work is that it's not like a part two doesn't pick up where part one leaves off. Part right. Part two is a complete rewrite. Interesting, where, yeah. W- yeah, where it's a different character's perspective. If you and I step into a room and somebody is just gobbling down dinner and licking the plate, I might think he's a glutton. You might think he's starving. Mm, right. We're both seeing the same, and we're both yeah. seeing the same thing. Yeah. So the novels, the trilogy is an exploration of how three people seeing the same thing come up with absolutely different stories. Yes. Yeah. You've talked about how in uh, African storytelling, often the story is told by a trickster character, so you can't necessarily rely on what you're being told. Um, and you've embodied some of this in Black Leopard, Red Wolf and, and in, in this upcoming trilogy. What appeals to you about this approach rather than, say, having an omniscient, reliable narrator? So much. One thing that appeals to me is that the reader has a lot more work than mm. they're used to. I think in a lot of Western storytelling, the very fact of a story being told means we trust the narrator. Right. Unless yeah. it's announced, he's unreliable. We, we just assume it. And I think in, in a lot of African storytelling and ancient storytelling in general, that wasn't assumed. Right. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. It was, yeah. It was. Um, yes, the story is wonderful. I was, uh, you know, I was entranced by it. But no, I don't believe you. Come back next week with another one. <laughs> and <laughs> how, you know, or the oral tradition works. It's, um, I remember my grandfather would tell us Anansi stories. And he would tell us a different story a day, but then he realized he's actually telling us the same story each day. <laughs> he just modified one thing, or he changed one thing, or the character was a boy, there is a girl here. The character was a hero, there is a villain there. But it's still essentially the same story. Mm. And I think what happens with that kind of story is that the listener is expected to participate more. Mm. Um, one of the ways in which the listener, or rather the reader, and nothing changeable for me with this book, is that um, at the end of the trilogy, there's not going to be a part four where I say, well, what really happened was. Mm. There's no voice of authorial authority who's going to come in and go, this is who you should believe. The mm. reader is going to have to decide. So the reader is going to have three books, and they're going to have to pick who's telling the truth. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I... I... Uh, read that you you said you know the reader has to choose which version of truth to believe and when I was reading that it made me wonder if you've settled yourself on which version is the truth or or whether as a a writer you're holding them all equal possibilities in your own mind I'm holding them all equal because the thing is if if, if this trilogy is going to work then you have to believe them you have to believe them or or you have to suspend disbelief for all three yeah yeah but I think um a lot of that, the whole nature of truth is still a matter of what we choose to believe. Yeah, that well, yes, and that's being reflected in the the outer world right now, very much, isn't it? So it's um, mm-hmm. it's an interesting time for for a trilogy of this nature, you know, where the reader is really being drawn, you know, attention is being drawn to that fact very clearly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You've said that a good writing day is when, at the end of it. You can say, I, I didn't see that coming. With a book with as many locations and characters as Black Leopard, Red Wolf, I'm wondering how much advanced structure is required 
versus spontaneity of writing where you follow the story as it unfolds and the characters as they evolve? Well, I think one leads to the other. Um, all that structure mm. gives me a kind of a base where I can just go wherever. Um, yeah, I do a lot of research. I think it was like two years of research on this. And the, 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 the main reason being that once I start writing, I like to move straight from beginning to end. Mm. I cannot necessarily stop and rewrite or reconsider. And to, to, to do that, to sort of move as if you're like driving in the dark, then mm. I have to know all about those worlds. And, and you know, I have to know where, sort of where the story is set and going. So I do do a lot of um, sort of uh, scaffolding. Um, is a good way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then once that's done, you know, I leave the characters basically to do whatever they want. And they go in directions which, um, you know, I might not have anticipated. But to me, that's, that's to me is, is the essence of writing. When characters become people and you, are, you, know, you basically just become a journalist for imagined people. Yes, right. Oh, that's an interesting way of putting it, yeah. <laughs> I recently interviewed the author of The Book Thief, Marcus Suzak, about his brilliant new book, Bridge of Clay, and he commented that some books you write you have to fight for. I'm wondering whether that resonates with you at all and if you found yourself up against anything in the writing of Black Leopard, Red Wolf. Um, I don't know. I know what he means by fight for. Is he mean fighting for the story or? I think so. Yeah, yeah. That just something you know to bring something into being in the way that you want. That that sometimes that's quite a difficult process, I guess. But you know, I mean, that may not be the case for you, particularly with what you said with you know the thinking about something for two years before you do it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it. it I mean, I remember my second novel being a kind of a fight between me and the characters because I still thought um, a novel was something that springs from my head and my head alone. And, that mm. and you know, the, whatever my intentions were from the beginning, that's the way it should be. And when these characters started to go in different directions than I'd originally planned, I thought I was losing control of my own book. Mm. Um, only to realize that that's not what was happening, is that the characters have become people. But I do think it's it can be a struggle because of you're 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 trying to suppress the ego of the writer and you're trying to suppress the judgment of the writer, mm. particularly in writing characters who are villains or not very good people. Yes, um, and you still have to recognize the humanity in those characters as well, and it can be it, it can be a fight. Yeah, it, it certainly felt like a fight with my second novel. I think by the third and fourth, I'd gotten used to my characters taking over the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you said that the first things you read were comics and fables and fantasies. And one of the things that interests me about these and traditional fairy tales is how they operate on the archetypal level and how they speak to the inner figures within us all and and you've spoken quite a lot here about um you know characters becoming people but i'm wondering if you also are interested in in exploring archetypes at all through your your work or or whether the sort of you know real nature of the characters and narrative is your main impetus i think it's the real nature of the characters i'm not necessarily interested in archetypes um because archetypes also sound like narrative stereotypes to me Right. And I also think a lot of the archetypes, particularly of fantasy, are very European. Right. And they and they reflect that. They reflect, um, you know, a sort of British or, or Scandinavian or so on. But either way, 
um, things you know uh, uh, things that don't necessarily that I know and love, but don't really apply to a book that's you know coming from a different place entirely. Right. Um, yeah. So it's and and also even even I think if the problem not it's not as a problem. I think that the the, the challenge with tropes is to make characters seem as if they had agency yes, as opposed yeah. to being part of a traditional narrative that they may be be locked into. I think there's a certain sort of fatalism to a lot of the ancient a lot of those ancient stories that I wasn't interested in doing. Because mm. uh, I think the more fantastical a, a book is, is the more you have to believe the characters. Right. And I think it's the more I, I know I have to work extra hard to make them seem real and human it's particularly the ones the characters who are not um you know, because i want people to feel as if you know these are living breathing people yes yeah so yeah. you know as opposed to just characters in a storytelling tradition right absolutely yeah you mentioned earlier how um if you hadn't won the man booker prize maybe you wouldn't have written um a, a fantasy novel and or trilogy as this is three novels what attracted you to writing fantasy for the first time? Well, the first thing that attracted me is that to me it doesn't feel like the first time. Right. You know, there there are fantastical elements in all the books I've written, particularly the first book. I mean, the first book has, you know, flying women and ups and upside down calves and all of that. It's actually <laughs> quite, it's actually quite surreal. I guess we would say magical magical realism. Right. Yes. Um, so yeah. it's not. It's not the first time I've, you know, been in the world of make-believe. No, no. Uh, um, but but I also knew that, certainly for me, uh, in my journey as a writer, I knew sooner or later I'd end up dealing with the myths. Right, yeah. You know, the myths and legends. Because, um, you know, that's our origins. That's, that's our origin narrative where the myths and the legends. And yeah. I just knew eventually I was going to end up there. It's like, you know, rock and roll, rock and roll musicians who, you know, inevitably end up at the blues. Yes. I yeah. I just knew that um, I wanted to go for what for me would be the ground zero of storytelling. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I've interviewed um, the iconic fantasy author Tad Williams several times, and we've discussed the intellectual snobbery surrounding genre fiction, which is mm -hmm. fairly one dimensional. As obviously there's a breadth of writing within fantasy, with some of it exceptionally well written. As a literary writer embarking on this genre, I'm wondering, have you been aware of that kind of intellectual snobbery at all about it? Oh, yeah. I, I was aware when I was trying to sell the book. Right. Um, yeah. Funny enough, funny enough with British publishers. Ah, interesting. Um, you know, quite a few. One British publisher mentioned that they, they didn't feel taking it on until they read all three books. Huh. Um, another British publisher said it was too sci-fi for the literary world and too literary for sci-fi and neither will read it. <laughs> um, so it was quite interesting some of the responses because I didn't get response from the, from the American or or Euro, a lot of the European press but I did get that from the British publishing industry yeah kind of stuck which in was the really mud interesting yeah and yeah I think they're very sort of stuck as you know this is this is a genre this is, and, and, and they quite like the genres but they don't they don't necessarily know what to do when a novel blurs the line yeah um, yeah I it, think it's, it's true they get in a sort of panic yeah. about how, I, how are we going to market this book? And yet, you know, for right. creative people, that's really where they want to go is across lines, you know, so it's unfortunate. Yeah, it made me, yeah, it made me wonder, well, who's reading Margaret Atwood? Yeah. 
yeah exactly yeah uh yeah and um and and, and you know those boundaries are something i just don't agree with and i've never really believed in it's not how i it's certainly not how i've ever read books um the one common denominator i had in all the books i read when i was a kid it was that i could find them mm. you know it was that somebody left one around somebody you know lent me or you know or I, you know or I stole it yeah <laughs> you know um it was just yeah and that and when with, with those you take whatever you can get. You take whatever is is handy. You take whatever is available. Whatever the other person doesn't want to read. So that would mean anything from Merchant of Venice in a in a, you know a Dover thrift edition Merchant of Venice to Jackie Collins's you know Hollywood Wives, you know um, James Cavill's um, Taipan, mm. um, John Steinbeck's The Pearl. And then whatever X-Men comic is lying around. Yeah. And I've always read all of them, and I never distinguished between them until... Well, I still haven't. And there's always, you know, all these comics lying around that I was a big fan of. And um, because I read in such a way and was glad to read anything, I just never distinguished between um, genres, and I still don't. No, no. And I think you're right. I think readers really a lot of readers don't so you know do that um so it's a shame that it has to be marketed like that but i think that's where libraries are so important that we keep libraries because you go there and there's just every kind of everything you know you, you mm -hmm. just all mix together yeah yeah well, if you just joined us, you're listening to It's a Question of Balance with me, Ruth Copland, and my special guest from the arts this week, award-winning writer Marlon James. And just to remind you, if you're listening in California in the Santa Cruz area, Marlon is going to be appearing at Bookshop Santa Cruz on Monday, February 18th at 7 p.m. It's a great opportunity to meet him and also get your book signed. His uh, new book, Black Leopard, Red Wolf, is part of a new trilogy. So um, you'll be able to get that signed with him. We're going to a break now, but I'll be back with more conversation with Marlon after these messages. like the music from It's a Question of Balance with Ruth Copland? Have you ever wondered what the full songs sound like? Now you can find out by listening to the new EP, It's a Question of Balance Music, available from iTunes, Amazon, and It's a Question of Balance.com. Just 
It's a question of balanced music. Download individual tracks or the whole EP from iTunes, Amazon, or it's a question of balance.com. Can you imagine living without stress, anxiety, or fear? And can you imagine a life filled with harmony and inner peace? Is that even possible? The Ananda Yoga and Meditation Center in Scotts Valley offers simple tools to help you become more effective at work and more centered in the face of life's challenges. At Ananda, we offer yoga classes for everybody, inspiring workshops, devotional chanting, and Sunday services based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. Our teachers and therapists are highly trained professionals who work together to inspire a healthier you. And your first Ananda Yoga class is always free. Visit us at anandascottsvalley.org or call 338-YOGA. That's anandascottsvalley.org or 338-YOGA. Named Best Film Festival by USA Today readers, the Cinequest Film and Creativity Festival returns to Silicon Valley, March 5th through March 17th. Here's Cinequest co-founder Kathleen Powell talking on It's a Question of Balance. You know, Silicon Valley is such a unique place. It's where creativity and innovation come together to empower. And that's our vision with Cinequest. This is where it all happens. We want every individual that walks through the door to feel like the value that they got far exceeds what they ever put into it. Join attending Maverick Award winners, beloved British actor Bill Nighy and multi-award winning actor and director Nandita Das for over 132 world and US premieres, virtual reality from 56 countries and a range of fabulous celebrations, live performances and creativity experiences. I'm interviewing Maverick Award winner, educator and journalist Esther Wojcicki after she's presented with her award. So I hope you can join us as well as checking out the festival films. Cinequest is a wonderful opportunity to see what the world's film community is creating. As Neil Gaiman says, it's the perfect festival in a glorious place. For the complete lineup and festival passes and tickets, visit cinequest.org. That's C-I-N-E-Q-U-E-S-T dot O-R-G. Ciao, I'm Luca from Tramonti at 528 Seabright Avenue, Steps from the Ocean. We are the authentic Italian pizza and pasta restaurant, serving also organic salad and house-made dessert in a friendly family-style atmosphere, indoor or on our lovely patio. Tramonti is open every day, Monday through Friday, from 4 p.m. to 10 p.m., happy hour from front to six. Saturdays and Sunday, we open at 11 and we also serve brunch. We bake our bread and prep our fresh pasta and pizza daily. We want to say grazie to the Santa Cruz community for supporting us since 2012. Allora, buon appetito. Visit Tremonti at 528 Seabright Avenue in Santa Cruz. That's Tremonti at 528 Seabright Avenue in Santa Cruz. And follow Tremonti Santa Cruz on Instagram. It's wonderful, it's wonderful. Welcome back. 
you're listening to It's a Question of Balance with me, Ruth Copland, and my special guest from the arts this week, Marlon James. So Marlon, you're known for writing books with quite a lot of violence and obviously there's darkness and light in life. What attracts you to writing so much about the darkness? Uh, well, for me, it's not dark. Mm. I, you know, I, I don't necessarily... I mean, that's, actually, I've never agreed with the... With, um, granted, it's a massive view that the, my books are particularly violent. I actually don't think they are. I don't think compared to some you know, books in other genres. What I think is different is, particularly with the way in which we consume media, um, mm. more, more film than anything else, is there's tons of violence where there's never any suffering. Right. Yes, that's true. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so um, you know, action hero kills forty people as if none of those people had wives. Right. Know, yeah. Or if none of those people had children. Also, as if being killed doesn't hurt. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I and and I, the, the, the one thing I know that one thing I do certainly is I you know I always cast an unflinching eye to things like that. So I think. Sometimes, uh, you know, if, if I have a violent act every 50 pages, for some people it's comparable to somebody having it every second page. Because those things should resonate. Right. Uh, it's, it's, it's not as explicit violence, it's also explicit sex. Yes, yeah. Which I also think should be explicit. Um, and, or at the very least, very clear. Yeah, so, what, so is, have... what, is, what is attracting you about it being so explicit? Because obviously there's a way of conveying... Um, violence or looking at, at violence and its consequences that isn't so graphic and and, and brutal. I, I mean, with sex, sure, obviously, it's graphic. Benefit? I'm sorry. Well, like when, when somebody said to me that they couldn't read my novel about slavery because it was so violent, and I said, you know, reading a novel about slavery might be hard, but it's probably easier than being a slave. Yeah. Um, you know, reading, reading a novel about violence against somebody is probably easier than going through it. I think um, that too often that sort of of what we think is subtlety is actually avoidance, and I think that it creates a, a warped idea of violence, of suffering, of any of these things. Mm. That you know, it may let the reader off the hook, but it's not what that's not what it is at all. And I think, um, which is one of the reasons why I always question when people claim empathy about certain things. I'm like, but you didn't. But there's nothing here to empathize. Mm. Um, I mean, I I don't think I would write. I don't write violence to the point where it's such a turnoff that it becomes a kind of pornography. I think if my readers start to be numb to it, that's a problem. If they're horrified, that's fine. You know, if yeah. they're shocked, they're horrified, they're disturbed. All of that is fine. It's if they're numb that that's a problem. Yeah. Are I you think- are you making an assumption then that most readers? Um, aren't already aware of of how uh, traumatic and bad and awful these things are and therefore they need to experience it through, a, you know, an, an, an artistic means? No, I'm sure they are aware. Uh, or they are aware to a bit, to, you know, to an extent. Right. I mean, I'm not here to teach people violence. I'm not here to teach people all, um, so on. But I also think that these things are also part of the human experience. Yeah. And I also and I think that um a kind of, you know, dressing up one thing or or avoidance which we sometimes we, we, we like to think we're being subtle and we're not. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think violence should be violent. 
uh, you know, yeah. instead of, you know, yeah. You know, yeah. having sex, yeah, having yeah. sex should be sexy. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, I, there is narrative tropes which I've always had issues with. Um, even in a way in which we write sex, where it's written again either from a point of view of avoidance or it's this strangely sort of dispassionate, coldly compulsive, mm. thoroughly unenjoyable, <laughs> and very classist, actually, yeah. way of, of, of writing about sex. If I were to follow film, media, and television, I think only rich people enjoy sex. Yes, yeah. Because they seem to have all this leisure time for all those people. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, there are lots of construction workers who are quite fine with their sex life. Yes, yeah. <laughs> you know, there are quite a few maids who are, who are quite happy, thank you very much. You know, yeah. It's, it's, um, but this, uh, this, this sort of narratives that we've established about things like that, I think is yeah. one of the reasons why when, they, when, when it's explicit, it comes across as so bracing. Um, you know, yeah. nobody, nobody, yeah. these type of discussions don't happen in Latin American lit. Uh, because they're like, you know, they, they have novels like Dirty Havana Trilogy or Infantes Inferno. Um, you know, in this type of talk also doesn't happen in, in, in queer lit. Right. Yes. Yeah. So it makes me wonder then, what are we exactly, what are we exactly saying? Yeah. What's going on? Issues? It, it, you know, it, it seems all very proper yeah. and waspy and puritan to me yes yeah yeah you know? well i think it's always good to shake things up and <laughs> and make people um look at things from a different perspective i mean i think if we're growing in life then hopefully we're mm. doing that through our lives and i think you know sometimes it can be really easy to just fall into a set way of of being in one's life and and not be looking at things anew so i mean you know literature is one way of of doing that of, of being yeah yeah I and I think we can also broaden what the literary experience means. Right. Uh, I think, you know, and I think, and, and that's not new either. Um, that's one of the things I actually think our older readers have way over us. Yeah. That for them, a book was a place of confrontation. I, you know, I mean, there are lots of issues with it now, but imagine being a white person in the 1800s who's reading Uncle Tom's Cabin. Yeah, yeah. And they're being forced to confront things. And I think the great thing about literature was that you could confront things vicariously. It's not, you're not, you're not, yes. you're not suffering from things, but you're being put front and center with, with situations. As, um, you know, imagine being at the beginning of the century and reading Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. Mm. Um, you know, or reading Giovanni's Room. Yeah, that the literature was to me was the forum where which you you explore these things and you confront these things, even the forbidden idea. Yeah, and I think we're too often now looking for literature to be a refuge from these things, which it's yeah. not meant to be. No, no, that's true. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But there's nothing wrong with certain pages in a book you're horrified by, as long as you're not driven numb. I think it's I think you know basically it's all good. Yeah. Yeah. The psychologist Alice Miller writes at length uh, about how art can help people process difficult events, whether these are, are things that they've experienced themselves or they've mm -hmm. witnessed. I'm wondering whether you feel art can have a healing effect on those making art and, and those experiencing mm -hmm. it, whether, whether it has any capacity to help us with integrating parts of ourselves. Um, absolutely. I mean, this is to me, it's nice for everybody. I'm a big believer in that. I'm not, and I'm not even 
I mean, it's funny because funny I, I absolutely despise pop psychology mm-hmm. and, and people making too big a deal about the sort of the healing powers of art, except it does heal. Yes, yeah. It does. It, it, it does. It, yeah. It's, it's, um, you know, there, there are things that, you know, there are things that, uh, you know, a great work of art or a great book or so on can do that, you know, other things can't. There are things that, and we can't really explain it. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there, there. You know, there are lines of poetry and there are songs that can heal people, or or make them feel less alone in the world. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, there, 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 there are works of art that allow you to process trauma. Yeah. Um, and even allow you to move forward from it. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are lots of really, really horrible people who have made really, really great art, and at least their <laughs> art shows us their best selves. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and that in itself can teach us things. There, there. Everything I learned about human nature, I learned from plays. Yeah. So I, I'm a, I'm a big believer in it because it's happened to me. Right. And it continues to happen. Yeah. I, I mean, I can talk about you know the the healing powers of Tony Morrison's Sula, who that gave me validation that. 20 years in church couldn't do. Yeah. Um, you know, I can talk about, you know, being, you know, so inspired by seeing stuff like the first time I saw Guernica in a gallery. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, or talking about how music can be such a lifeline. Sometimes for a lot of people, hearing a song the next day is the only thing that's keeping them alive. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so absolutely. It's, it's, um, I think this is one of the reasons why, um, you know, uh, you know when, when the cut, the cutting of arts education in schools is such a bad uh, idea that we're really going to pay for. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I was going to ask you about that, and and particularly um, they're changing it. At least in California, the the curriculum um, to much more practical reading and writing, and far mm-hmm. less fiction and and hardly any creative yeah. writing. And it's such a mistake. Yeah, it's like when I come to I teach college, and there are so many people who think. They're going to do something, you know, enter a specialist career field mm. because that's more practical. I said, you know, I'm, a pre- I'm pretty old. <laughs> I remember in 19, 1997 to 1999, one of the most, the most attractive careers in the world was Y2K manager. <laughs> a job that became instantly irrelevant in one second. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so all those people who went to college to be the best Y2K experts they can, their jobs became instantly irrelevant. Yes. And I can go through a list of of, of um you know of, of 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 jobs that everybody thought was so lucrative and people went to school to learn because they don't want to get an English degree and that before they left college the job was irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, good luck. Good luck being a systems manager. Systems don't need you to be managed anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so it's 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 this idea that um, the things that people from centuries have looked upon as as ways in which to guide us are suddenly irrelevant is, is ridiculous. Most of my graduate, most of my students who are graduates, they graduate with an English degree, and they're in jobs that specialists can't get. Yeah. Well, I know a lot of businesses are now employing MFAs rather than MBAs because the MBA programs have become so sort of rote, you know, that those people are not really creative anymore, you know, so I think... Yeah, and yeah. they're victims of the world they created. Exactly. They created this hyper-accelerated culture, but the hyper-acceleration means their, their degrees are irrelevant before they even graduate. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's true. Well, it's been wonderful talking to you, Marlon. I, I really appreciate it. I had one kind of light-hearted question just before mm-hmm. you you go. After winning the Man Booker Prize, you jokingly said you'd spend the money on Savile Row Taylor's Jeeves and Hawks or Oswald Bertang and. I've met Oswald Bertang and I, I love his suit. So when I read that, I was curious whether you did actually ever get one. Cause that... I have not. And he, supposed, <laughs> and he was supposedly giving, giving me one. So you know where I'm going to go as soon as I land in London. Yeah. I'm like, I hope you remember, and it was four years ago. But <laughs> yeah, that I just I love his uh, his work. Mm. They're just brilliant. So yeah, I would definitely say get go and get one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much, and it's been lovely, you know, hearing about your art and also um, the the new book. And uh, just to let listeners know again, you're going to be here um, in Santa Cruz, in California, on Monday, February eighteenth at seven. PM, so um, I'm going to be going. So I look forward to seeing you there, Marlon. Looking forward to seeing you. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Thanks. Thanks again for listening. And I look forward to you joining me again next time.